The reading this morning is taken from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15, and you find it on page 1183 in the Pew Bibles. Colossians 2, 6 to 15. Freedom from human regulations through life with Christ. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood oppressed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. By the cross. This is the word of the Lord. I add my welcome to you all this morning, whether here in whether you're joining us here in church or whether you're joining us online. It's great to be able to welcome you this morning. As we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for those tidings of great joy that uh, are so associated with Christmas. And thank you, Father, for the freedom that we have in you, the freedom to meet together this morning, to sing your praises, to bring our needs before you in prayer, and to hear your word read. And Father, we pray now that as we consider your word, you'd speak to us afresh of the wonderful freedom that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For anyone of a certain age, and I'm not going to embarrass you by saying what that age is, but suffice it to say that I remember this well from childhood visits to grandparents. But if you're of that age and had cause to travel pretty much anywhere in London, I'm sure you'll remember seeing these words, or variants of them, proclaiming the innocence of George Davis, G. Davis he was sometimes. His need to be freed from jail and appeared on just about every overbridge or otherwise blank wall or otherwise unadorned 
vertical surface there. Geographically, a little, at least a bit closer to Hartford, cricket fans amongst you may well remember the damage done to the wicket at Headingley during the 1975 Test match against Australia, where George Davis's supporters dug holes in the pitch and poured oil over one end of the wicket, which pretty effectively put end to any further play taking place. And I can't tell you what the score was at the point that that happened. Who was George Davis? Most people had never heard of his name until claims of his innocence were writ large across the public spaces of our capital city. Well, he was an armed robber who at the time was serving 20 years in jail for his supposed part in an armed payroll raid on the offices of the London Electricity Board in Ilford in East London. His conviction, it was claimed, was based on unreliable identification evidence in the absence of anything else linking him to the raid. And he was eventually released on the grounds the original conviction was unsafe, although he was not exonerated of the crime of which he was accused. It's interesting to note that following his release in 1976, he was subsequently convicted and jailed for his part in another armed robbery, and then a couple of years after his release from that stint in jail, he was convicted and jailed again for his attempt his part in an attempted mailbag robbery. So whilst he may have been innocent of the first crime, to quote the opening words of what I think is my, one of my favourite television comedies, he was an habitual criminal who accepts arrest as an occupational hazard and presumably accepts imprisonment in the same casual manner. Again, you probably need to be of a certain age to work out where that came from. One Amusing byproduct of the G. Davis's innocent campaign was the spoof campaign proclaiming the innocence of the person who at the time was seemingly the country's most wanted criminal. For almost everywhere you looked at, there were injunctions that stated that bill stickers will be prosecuted. <laughs> it was everywhere you looked. Even London Transport got in on the act. We never actually, to this day know what his crime was, but people were very adamant he was going to be prosecuted. But today, more serious matters, we continue with our series of Advent studies, and we're considering today how Jesus was born for our freedom. The concept of freedom will mean lots of different things for each of us here this morning. We might long for financial freedom, for freedom from debt, freedom from pain, freedom from loneliness, freedom from persecution, freedom from COVID and its impacts, freedom from oppression, freedom from, given the current cold weather, the cold, freedom from worry about how we're going to pay the next gas and electric bill. For those wrongly imprisoned, freedom from jail, and I could go on. For many, like my friend Peter and his family, it will be freedom from the recently diagnosed cancer that means that this Christmas will very likely be his last. If we look a bit further afield, considering for a moment just one of the many conflicts raging around the world at this time, That in Ukraine, for the people of Ukraine, I'm sure they will be longing for freedom from occupation, freedom from relentless and indiscriminate missile attacks on their utility infrastructure, 
freedom from the relentless power cuts and the cold and darkness that they bring, freedom for those who have fled that troubled land to exile, to be able to return home in safety. And then for those on the other side of the conflict, there will be many mothers, fathers, loved ones, fearing for the safety of their loved ones, conscripted into Putin's army, sent to the battlefield ill-equipped and ill-trained. Elsewhere in the world, we see people desperate to be freed from harsh and relentless state-imposed restrictions applied in in an attempt to limit the spread of COVID or restrictions imposed in the name of religious observance on what women must wear, preventing girls from attending school, and I could go on. Although a highly politicised debate, there are many who seek asylum here in this country as a refuge freedom from dreadful persecution in their homelands. And it's wonderful that we're able to welcome our friends from Hong Kong as part of our community here in Hartford, and especially at St. John's. And there's a clear biblical injunction to to care for the poor, the fatherless, and the alien, and that's not little green men from outer space. When we talk about aliens, it's people from outside Israel. That's repeated throughout the Old Testament, starting with Deuteronomy 10, verse 18, where we read, He, that's the Lord, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And of course we see that made real in the story of Ruth, who found refuge in Israel, the Moabitess, found refuge in Israel, who became a part of the lineage that led ultimately to Jesus. This country has a long and honourable history of welcoming those genuinely seeking refuge from persecution, history that stretches back at least to the 16th centuries as we welcome the first recorded refugees to this country, the Huguenots, who found a, a haven here in the face of intense religious persecution in France. And this country has provided a safe refuge to many groups since that time. There are, of course, many economic migrants who seek to enter this country illegally in pursuit of a better life, and we can only begin to imagine the difficulty faced by those tasked with trying to discern those who are genuinely seeking and deserving of refuge and asylum, those seeking freedom from those who are simply seeking a better life for them and their families. And even this is perhaps not as straightforward as some would have us believe. As many of you may know, our eldest son works for the United Nations and he regularly travels to the refugee camps in very remote and inhospitable parts of northern Kenya, close to the border with Sudan and Somalia as part of his work. I just want to share with you a few photographs from his most recent visit just a few weeks ago, which illustrate conditions in the camp at Dadaab, which is about 40 kilometres south of the Somali border. There's something like 260,000 people registered as resident living here, living in conditions like this. That apparently is a home for about 50, a family of about 15 people. In there. There are another 46,000 people waiting to be registered, and about 400 people arriving in the camp every day. So, if we top that lot up with something just over 300,000 people there, and to put that in context, the population of the camp is the same as that of Coventry or Belfast or Leicester, slightly bigger than the population of Belfast or Leicester there. 
people finding freedom from a ferocious conflict in their homeland, civil war, and a prolonged and devastating drought that's killing all their livestock, even as they flee to the relative safety of the camps. Many are dying on the journey, especially the very young, the very old. And so the road to the camp is littered with animals that have died in the drought, which is ultimately their livelihood. And his work has given us insights into these forgotten places where hundreds of thousands of people, second and third generation of those who were originally settled there, are forced to live, wholly reliant on foreign aid to sustain them, existing in some strange limbo land, unable to return safely to their homelands and with their hosts reluctant to allow them to integrate into society in Kenya for fear of the impact that would have on the balance of power within the country because if given the vote, these camps would be amongst the largest constituencies in the country. When you see the conditions here in these camps, the harsh conditions, the meagre rations, any lack of hope for the future, for freedom, then freedom takes on a very different complexion. And it's perhaps not surprising that there are many who were prepared to risk everything in pursuit of a better life in the West to escape from these conditions. In the aftermath of the Second World War, representatives of the 50 member states of the United Nations came together to draw up a list of the rights that everyone across the world should enjoy. 74 years ago yesterday, on the 10th of December 1948, the General Assembly of the United Nations announced the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 30 rights and freedoms, including the right to life and liberty, freedom from slavery and torture, freedom of opinion and expression, the right to work and the right to education. Sadly, although there's been progress in realising these aims over the ensuing 74 years, there remain countless millions around the world for whom some or all of these rights remain unfulfilled. But if we now take a step back and consider all the things that restrict us, that we seek to be free from, ultimately, they remind us that we live in a fallen world. Some of the things that ensnare us and hold us captive are self-imposed. The vast majority are imposed on us directly or indirectly by our fellow beings, human beings. But as we shall discover ultimately, whether self-inflicted or inflicted on us by others, ultimately it's in Satan who ensnares and holds us captive to sin. Perhaps at its most extreme, slavery is the ultimate denial of human freedom. And despite its abolition in pretty much every jurisdiction, slavery in one form or another remains widespread, even here in this country. Despite the efforts of evangelicals like William Wilberforce to pass legislation to ban the practice a couple of centuries ago. And if modern slavery weren't such an issue, why is it mandated that most commercial organisations have to have modern slavery policies in place that require them to take action to identify, prevent and mitigate modern slavery in their operations, in their supply chains? Now, interestingly, of course, in biblical times, the attitude to slavery was very different, but we don't have time this morning to explore that aspect any further. But even if not coming under malign influence from those who would seek to oppress us, the pain and suffering that affects so many a vivid reminder of the fallen world that we live in, for ultimately it's Satan who's behind all our oppressions. It's Satan who's keeping us captive. How do we know that to be the case? Well, 
We have to look no further than, for example, the penultimate chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, where we read that in the new Jerusalem, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why is that so? Because the old order of things has passed away. All the things that oppress us and hold us captive, they're going to be destroyed in that new Jerusalem. The new creation, when that time comes, will restore Eden. There'll be no more night, there'll be no more darkness, there'll be no more need for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun or the light of a candle even. For the Lord God will give light to all who live in the new Jerusalem. And notice how there's no reference to any of the things or people or forces that cause us pain or hold us captive in that description of the new Jerusalem because they're all going to be destroyed. We will be set free. So hang on to that thought as we turn to those verses from Paul's letter to the Colossians that Rosalind read for us a little earlier. So if you've closed your Bibles or turned off your electronic device, turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, which you can find on page 1183 of the Church Bibles. Paul, as he wrote these words, himself was a prisoner in Rome. And the situation in the church in Colossae was that it had been infiltrated by those who were attempting to combine elements of paganism and secular philosophy with Christian doctrine. And that doesn't sound at all familiar, does it? The young church there in Colossae was being influenced by those who preached a doctrine that denied the supremacy of Christ. And the church was primarily made up of Gentile, non-Jewish believers, but like the Galatian church, The local leaders were pressuring the the, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, to follow the Jewish law and were adding in all sorts of extra rules and false teaching, claiming all sorts of secret spiritual knowledge. And it's that that Paul is seeking to counter in this letter. In verse 8 of chapter 2, Paul warns the Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on, what does it depend on? Human tradition and basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. I've got a slightly different NIV translation, and it says it, elemental spiritual forces. And Paul's saying, look, be aware, be alert. These people are leading you astray. And as we look at the church today, what do we see? We see the same human traditions the same basic principles of this world at work trying to spread false teachings to water down or overwrite. Just have ruled out the true and sound doctrines of the church that are based on biblical truths. And what are they trying to replace them with? False doctrines. Masquerading as making the church inclusive, relevant to a modern generation. How often do we hear explicitly or implicitly in these debates the words of Satan to Eve as he tempted her to take a bite of that fruit? Did God really say that? Surely that wasn't the case. Why would he do that? Brothers and sisters, we need to stand firm against false teachers today, just as Paul called on the Colossians to stand firm, calling them out for what they are. But the reality is, 
that as Christians we can only recognize false doctrines if we know what the right doctrines are, what the true doctrines are of the church. And we need to be taught about these. Brothers and sisters, we need to be so thankful that here at St. John's, whilst we're not perfect by any stretch of anyone's imagination, we are blessed by being faithfully taught God's word week by week so that we're able, hopefully, to discern false teaching, understand why these false teachings are so at odds with God's word that's found in the Bible, to be able to refute the, at times, very subtle and very convincing arguments of those who'd lead the church away from God's word and, above all, lead the church away from the supremacy of Christ. We are immensely privileged here, so please, please can I encourage you to continue to give thanks for and to pray for Mike and John and Dim and Nathan and Teresa and all who faithfully expound God's word to us week by week. So there are then very close parallels between the situation in the church in Colossae and the situation faced by the church here in the country today. So these words should speak to us loudly, powerfully, clearly. We all need to see to it that no one takes us captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. Notice that, taking captive. This is about freedom. We're considering that Christ was born for our freedom. And yet here Paul is saying, beware of those who are trying to hold you captive. Trying to bind us to human traditions. Those basic principles of the, of the world. Elemental spiritual forces. We need to rely on Christ, for it's only in Christ that we find true freedom, which is where we turn our thoughts to now. And we'll consider that in three parts. We'll consider it as the supremacy of Christ, our situation before Christ, and then how we're freed to new life in Christ. If we think back to the list of things that people want or need to be freed from, the thing they all have in common is that there is a role of forces by and large, beyond our control, if we step back far enough, ultimately we find the origin of all the things that oppress us is the figure of Satan, who ultimately, whether we like it or not, like it or acknowledge it or not, holds us all captive to sin. Very hard to bind ourselves, isn't it? Very rarely if ever, is it possible to free ourselves from whatever it is that binds us, unless you're a professional escapologist like Harry Houdini. Um, and I think he came to a sticky end in, eventually, didn't he? Even those who try to bust out of prison rarely do so without the aid of others. And to be set free, we need someone greater than us to do that. And in verse 9, Paul is explicit about the one person alone in all creation who has the ultimate authority to set us free. And look at what Paul says there about Jesus. In Christ, he says, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He is the head over every power and authority. This time of year, we're perhaps more used to hearing the majestic opening verses of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Words that express the same inescapable truth, that Jesus is Lord over all because he is one with God. 
Those opening words of John's Gospel and Paul's words here in Colossians chapter 2 express the same truth. That Christ is supreme above all creation. All the fullness of the deity lives in Christ. And did so even as he became incarnate and lived on earth in bodily form. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? It might not seem like this is true as we look around us as we are very aware of all the things that are holding us captive. But we know as Christians that ultimately Jesus will prevail. And indeed he has prevailed in the fullness of time God's new creation will be brought into being. That new creation of perfect freedom. So Christ is supreme over all creation because He is nothing less than the author of creation, the head over every power and authority. Yes, those powers and authorities have rebelled against God's sovereign rule, but Christ remains sovereign, and Scripture promises that one day he will return to draw a line under history to bring to judgment all those who have rebelled against him. And in the church's calendar, Advent is the time when we especially remind ourselves of that truth. When we look forward not just to celebrating the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago as a babe in a manger. But when he will come again with all power and glory and might and majesty to institute that new creation, to bring it fully into being. As we read through the Gospels, each time we see Jesus performing a miracle in his earthly ministry, making the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, when he cast out demons, when he raised the dead to life. All the things that if you go back to the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Christ, the coming Messiah, go back to the book of Isaiah, and those are all the things that Isaiah says will characterize the coming Messiah. Jesus, when people ask about who he is, points to all of the things that he's done and points them back to Isaiah. So does that match with what Isaiah, what the scriptures say about the coming Messiah? Every time that Jesus performed one of those miracles, he was making a mockery of Satan. He's establishing his power and authority over Satan's dominion as he frees people from their bondage. Each of these acts of divine love and power is just making an utter mockery of Satan. And then, of course, Jesus goes on to make the ultimate humiliation of Satan as he dies on the cross, which we'll come to in a moment. For now, though, having understood the supremacy of Christ, we need to consider our situation. A situation made clear in the first half of verse 13 where Paul describes our situation as unrepentant, unforgiven sinners that we are dead in our sins. We're bound captive by Satan's power. Back in verse 11, Paul describes our whole self as being ruled by the flesh, the the powers of this world. However we might choose to dress it up as unrepentant, unforgiven sinners, we're kept prisoner by Satan's power, kept hostage, bound by sin, unable to escape. We might do 
all we can to try and deny those truths. For it's a bleak and hopeless prospect, were it not for the hope that's to be found in Jesus. And so having considered the apparent hopelessness of our situation in the first half of verse 13, now let's consider the tremendous hope with which that verse concludes. For Paul tells the Colossians, and remember he was writing to a church that was under attack from those who sought to deny the supremacy of Jesus. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you. What did he do? He made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailed it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It seems strange, doesn't it, that Jesus should triumph on the cross a ghastly means of execution. And yet that's what happened on Calvary's cross. Christ triumphed over all the powers of darkness and made an utter humiliation of Satan. Notice how Jesus didn't die for the Colossian Christians or us, because they or us were especially nice or good or deserving, or in our case because we're Church of England. Christ died for them and us and everyone before and since when we were dead in our sins, a truth that we find time and again in Scripture. Christ died for each of us while we were utterly revolting to him because of our sinfulness. But such is God's love for each of us as a person that God gave Jesus to pay the price for our sin. The problem for all of us is that the sin that ultimately holds us captive is only punishable by death and eternal separation from God. By his death on the cross, Jesus pays the price for our sin, and because God is holy and just, he can't punish us twice for the same sin. So it is that we're declared not guilty. Returning to where we began for a moment, we might like to think that we're innocent. Take that slogan and put your name there, not literally on a wall, But isn't that how we think of ourselves? Jay Huns is innocent, okay? That's how we think of ourselves, but sadly that's not the truth. George Davis ultimately had his conviction quashed as unsafe, but he wasn't exonerated. In the eyes of God as unrepentant sinners, we're guilty as charged, but when we turn to Christ in penitence and faith, trusting in what Christ did for us on the cross, there's no porridge to be done for our conviction. For our wrongdoing, our sin hasn't just been overturned as unsafe. There is simply no charge to answer in the slightly clumsy legal language that Paul uses, certainly in the very subtly different translation of the NIV I've got here. Our legal indebtedness has been cancelled. Put simply, there's no case to answer. It's like we've never been charged. Jumping back to verse 12, we discover what Christ's victory means for us. Nothing less than being raised with Christ from death to life. And how is this brought about? Through our faith in the working of God who raised Christ to life. 
It's Satan who enslaves us, and it's Christ and Christ alone who frees us through his death on the cross. And this was the reason for Christ's incarnation here on earth, as we read in the second half of verse 8 of 1 John chapter 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And destroy it he has, not yet, alas, completely. But Satan's been mortally wounded. And we know his days are numbered. But we need to remain alert and never drop our guard, for as with any wounded creature, they can still strike dangerously. And so coming round to our carol this morning, one of the oldest recorded carols that we have, dates back to the 16th century. I have to say the words that we sung this morning aren't always the words that, the form of the words that got sung in school carol services, but we'll draw a veil over that. That was a long time ago. But the words of that carol remind us of the reason for Jesus coming to earth and why it is such a joyous time, why it is tidings of great joy, a time when nothing should dismay us. But the tidings of comfort and joy are not found in the tissued fripperies and sweet and silly things, bath salts and inexpensive scent and hideous ties so kindly meant that John Betjeman wrote about in his poem Christmas. The true joy is to be found in Christ's coming. The final verse of that poem reveals a remarkable profoundness of belief, albeit influenced by Anglo-Catholic thinking, but bear with me as he goes on to write. No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeples shaking bells can with this single truth compare that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Our carol reminds us powerfully that Jesus Christ, our Saviour, was born on, Christian, on Christmas Day to save us from Satan's power when we were gone astray. One line summarising the great truths of the Gospel and that message still present, represents tidings of comfort and joy to all on earth. If you've yet to discover the truth of the Christmas story, if you're feeling bound, imprisoned, unable to escape, whatever it is that ensnares you, remember that it's Satan who holds you captive. And the truth is that Jesus Christ was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power. He didn't come to do that when we got our lives together, when we got ourselves sorted out, but when we were still in a complete and utter mess when we were right down in the gutter, when we were dead in our sins, Christ comes. He reaches out to lift us up out of that if we put our trust and faith in him and his redeeming work on the cross. We hear very much all the time about the the soaring cost of living. But this isn't a gift that comes at a price to us. It's offered freely, albeit at a dreadful price to our Father in heaven as he watched Jesus die on the cross. My prayer this morning is that if you've yet to discover the real joy of Christmas, you would seek Jesus this Christmas tide and make him Lord of your life. Talk to John or Mike or myself after the service. If you're in that place. And for those of us who do know Christ already, there's no promise that everything will be perfect as we turn to Christ, as many of us here today know. Nowhere does Scripture scripture promise promise us that everything will be well. 
What it does change is that we can face anything that life throws at us in the secure and certain knowledge that Christ is over all, that Christ is triumphant, that Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities, and that more than that, he made, past tense, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so it is that we can know freedom and the peace that comes from knowing God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you gave Jesus Christ to give us our freedom. Father, for those who are struggling at this time, Father, we pray for them. We pray that they would know the freedom that comes from you, the peace that comes from knowing you. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we might all know the peace and joy and be willing to share the glad tidings of great joy that are this Christmas tide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.